Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Здравствуйте, дорогие друзья. Hi, everyone. Thank you for watching this. What do the greatest Chinese writer Le Shun, the most famous Japanese writer Ryunosuke Akutagawa, the Czech genius Franz Kafka, and the American writer Flannery O'Connor, and the Russian writer Fyodor Dostoevsky have all in common? The answer is Google, not Google, Nikolai Google. He inspired a new literary style, satirical, grotesque or dark ironic comedy with the most famous example being Kafkaesque. Not only that, the Ukraine-born Google is pioneer of Russian prose fiction and without him it would be difficult to imagine Turgenev, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Chekhov, as they were all heavily influenced by his satirical writing. Today I'll answer the following questions. Who was Nikolai Gogol? What are some of his best works? I'll summarize his masterpiece, Dead Souls, and discuss his style of writing and why he was such a comic genius. In the end, I'll tell you about some of his great short stories, also his influence on world literature from Japan to China, from Russia to Europe. But first, let me tell you a bit about Gogol's life. Nikolai Gogol was born in 1809, the same year as Charles Darwin, Edgar Allan Poe, or three years before Napoleon's invasion of Russia in 1912. At the time, Ukraine was as Malia Rus, or Little Russia, like today Belarus means White Russia. Gogol was born in a Cossack family. For those of you who don't know, Cossacks were originally nomadic people who later lived in the territory of Russian Empire, or Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, but they also had a certain level of independence. The root of the word comes from the Turkic, which means free man. Later in Russia, the Cossacks took a more warrior connotation as they were organized in militaristic groups under the Soviet army. Gogol grew up speaking both Ukrainian and Russian, but he wrote his novels in Russian, the language of the empire at the time. Age 12, Gogol moved to Nizhin, a small town near Kiev, to study in secondary school. He hated his school curriculum, especially maths and science, but found his refuge in school theater, where his artistic and storytelling talent shine. Today, his former high school is a university called Nizhin Gogol State University. In 1828, when he was 20, he moved to St. Petersburg, the capital of the Russian Empire, where people went in search of their Dickensian fortune. Gogol had two goals. One, to become a writer, and two, become a scholar of Cossack studies. Age 23, he published his first collection of short stories, Evenings on a Farm Near Dikanka, mostly based on his childhood in Ukraine, described with care and attention. This book grabbed many readers' attention, so he doubled down on it and published three more collections of short stories, which established him as a young talent from Ukraine or Little Russia. This further reinforces Gogol's interest in his own Cossack heritage. This resulted in his novel, Taras Bulba, published in 1835 about a Cossack father and his two sons who fight not against the Russians, but against Poland to free West Ukraine. 
which was under the occupation of Polish rule. Their fight for independence has disastrous consequences for the Ukrainian Cossacks and tragic betrayals on the Polish side. Gogol's style in this novel is epic and heroic, which is very different from his realism in his later more pop works. Despite his writing career boxing him as a Ukrainian or little Russian writer, Gogol's attempt to get a steady government job in the fields of Cossack cultural studies failed. In a bizarre twist, however, somewhat akin to the comedy of his fiction, he was appointed the Professor of Medieval History at the University of St. Petersburg. But Google had no qualification to teach medieval history. It's like if Oxford University appoints me as a professor of Ukrainian studies. Google, the professor, gave a few vague, botched and comic-style lectures. But a year later, in 1835, he resigned from his post, pretending his toothache was making teaching impossible for him. These experiences with the government officials and Petersburg bureaucracy and pretentious people absorbed in their ranks and reputations gave Google great goggles to observe the Russian state, local officials and the Russian people. Just remember that he was an outsider who had moved in so he experienced being on the inside and now he was on the outside once again. This gave him a perfect lens to dissect the Russia of the time, understand the psychology of those with power and those without. He was the greatest absurdist comic genius of 19th century Russian Empire, just as Franz Kafka was a astute analyst of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 20th century. They saw darkness, absurdities and humor most people couldn't see or didn't care to see. Around this time, he also got to know Russia's greatest poet, Alexander Pushkin, who had a transformative influence on Google's life and writing, especially in the development of his comic voice and fiction. Without being able to establish a career for himself in St. Petersburg, he moved abroad to France, but later mainly lived in Italy. Why not? Nowhere can you find better pizza, opera and culture. His travels also allowed him to meet writers from other parts of Europe, for example the national poet of Poland, Adam Mickiewicz, who wrote the Polish epic of Pan In 1841 he published his masterpiece Dead Souls, which helped Google to become the best Russian prose writer of his age. It is Google's reinterpretation of Dante's Divine Comedy set in the 19th century Russia. In 1848 he traveled to Jerusalem and became more and more interested in religious experience. Around this time he also started to experience moments of insanity which resulted in him burning a large portion of his novel, Dead Souls Part 2. His mental capacity deteriorated to the point that in 1852 he refused to eat for 9 days, which ultimately killed him. Pushkin died aged 37, Lemontov died aged 26 and Gogol died aged 42. He would be the last of the Russian great writers who died young. In 1931, the authorities demolished the monastery where Gogol was buried and discovered that he was lying face down, raising speculations that he might have been buried alive. Now that makes a great plot for one of his own stories. He never married nor had any children. It is possible the man died a virgin. Summary Metrophy Duche or Dead Souls was published in 1842 but it's incomplete as it ends in mid-sentence because Gogol in a bout of insanity destroyed second part or perhaps he was inspired by Lawrence Stern who also finished one of his novels in mid-sentence. 
Google is often characterized as a Russian stern in his comic style, but much, much darker, which not only reflects the centuries of growth of modernity, but also the Russian setting being much gloomier in general. Its protagonist is Pavel Chichikov, a middle-ranking aristocrat, but with a huge entrepreneurial ambition to get rich. Very rich and very quickly. He has an amazingly clever idea to achieve his goal, buying dead people. Nobody has thought of such an original idea. The title of the novel, Dead Souls, refers to dead serfs in Russia. Before 1861, nearly 30 million Russians lived under the system of serfdom, meaning 50% of all Russians at the time belonged to the landowners. So if you bought land, the serfs who worked on the land also came with the purchase, like the animals. Landowners were responsible for the serfs, for their health, well-being, just like farmers care about their livestock. Since the government census only happened once every few years, the tax the landowners had to pay was based on the previous censor. This meant landowners had to pay tax for those serfs who had died since the last census. This discrepancy between the official number of serfs on the register and the real number of serfs who worked on land cost money to the landowners. They were taxed on an asset that no longer lived. So this is where our hero of dead souls, the mysterious Mr. Chichikov, shows up in a town in Russia. At the beginning, Gogol doesn't tell us who he is and for what purpose he buys dead people. Google describes the inn he's staying as full of cockroaches and its cushions as hard as cobblestones. So we know that Chichikov is not the aristocrat he claims to be. But Chichikov doesn't care about the terrible inn he's staying. He's more interested in two groups of people in town. The powerful officials, like the town's mayor, chief of police and other big shots. And the second group being the large landowners who have a lot of serfs. He's not alone though, he has two servants with him who help him drive his horse carriage and care for him. He's well dressed, speaks eloquently and talks pleasantly about everyone. He's the perfect swindler. While staying in town, he takes day trips to the neighboring farms just like a door-to-door -door salesman. Google's landowners are some amazing characters, each very unique, some old men, some women, and others as clever as Chichikov. Google's technique is to create these characters to battle hardened sh Google's technique is to create these unique and varying characters to battle hardened Chichikov, to confront him, to test his patience. This makes a great comedy when you pit a swindler against some robust country people who are no pushovers. Some are as crooks as Chichikov himself. The landowners invite him to their house, give him food and drinks and treat him like some royalty. Once he has gained a level of rapport with them, he gets to business. I want to buy your dead serfs. What did you say? I want to buy your dead souls. The landowners look at his mysterious man more carefully. They rub their ears to make sure they are hearing him correctly. Once Chichikov makes sure they know what he's asking, the landowners are as baffled as we are. They have the same question we all do. Why? For what purpose? Chichikov has many answers, usually saying it doesn't concern them, or he is a philanthropist helping local landowners by unburdening them of their taxes. Or he says his plan is too delicate to discuss openly. To the landowners, it all sounds too good to be true. Not only they don't have to pay tax, but they also get money. 
When Chichikov asked the landowners to keep it all secret, some are too skeptical. Some ask for more money, thinking their dead serfs might have gone more in value because they are dead. And some reject him, terrified, thinking there is something missing. There is one who asks him to play cards or gamble on the deal, which almost gets him into trouble with the police. Since each landowner has unique characters, since each landowner has unique characteristics widely different from one another, Chichikov has to invent and reinvent himself every time. Here is a scene in which the landowner rejects his serfs as dead but living. Quote, so went on Chichikov. If no obstacle stands in the way, we might as well proceed to the completion of this purchase. What? Of purchase of dead souls? Of dead souls? Oh dear no, let's write them down as living ones, seeing that this is how they figure in the census returns. His journeys are not as easy as he had expected. He thought that these country landowners would be happy to unburden themselves of tax or would be simple country people, but he has his works cut out for him. Here we learn that some landowners are as ruthless as Chichikov despite living in somewhat idyllic countryside. So Google shows that feudalism was just as ruthless as new capitalism of Chichikov in exploiting people, sucking the blood of the poor and counting every penny. The landowners talk about their serfs as if someone talk about their livestock. Some lazy, some are thieves and some are hard workers. And some are afflicted with diseases so they couldn't be saved. They count their serfs like a shepherd counts his sheep. Despite that, Chichikov manages to buy almost 400 dead serfs. That is a success, so he returns to town to register them legally. In town, rumors spread about Chichikov's purchases, so he acts like a celebrity millionaire or a wealthy prince, and the corrupt people in the government buys his story and everyone treats him with respect due to his sudden fortune. Appearance is reality, people speculate about him, and ladies gossip to find many great qualities in him. People's imagination does the work for him, as they try to invent exaggerated qualities about Chichikov. As Uncle Ben said, with great fame comes great many rumors and suspicious tales. You cannot make quick money without making a few problems for yourself. People ask questions. Quote, on first speaking to the man, his ingratiating smile, his flaxen hair and his blue eyes would lead one to say, what a pleasant, good-tempered fellow he seems. Yet, during the next moment or two, one would feel inclined to say nothing at all. And during the third moment, only to say, the devil alone knows who he is. In other words, nobody knows him. People have to fill their imagination with something. The biggest rumor that is circulating is that Chichikov has bought 400 serfs and they're all dead. In other words, he has nothing but a book with just 400 dead names in it. Google shows a picture of before the gossips and after the gossips, how moral outrage turns nasty all of a sudden. At one moment, the people revere him as the shiny prince, the biggest hero in town. The next moment, everyone turns against him, just like the autumn wind changes course quickly. Today, the media elevates actors and then slams them down to make a story. In the chaos that ensues, some people think Chichikov might be Napoleon, disguising himself as a Russian, or some outlaw. Some even accuse him of planning to run away with the governor's beautiful daughter. Chichikov's princely days are over and he has to run away from town before everything catches up to him. 
Google reveals that Chichikov's secret plan was to accumulate enough debt serves on paper so he could go to the bank in order to get a large loan and then with his big stash of cash vanish to Mexico. I mean somewhere nice to enjoy life. Basically Chichikov is a ruthless and shrewd capitalist entrepreneur whose plan is to scam his way to quick wealth. He's a fraud and a clever swindler. But for Gogol, it's a fantastic idea for comedy to expose how old and lazy the Russian serve system was. Nothing but a standing joke. It's no surprise that 20 years after the publication of this novel, the Russian serve system was abolished and 30 million serves were freed. And also decades later, the Bolsheviks destroyed the Russian social fabric to install a socialist system based on collectivization, in which everyone worked for the government. Here we learn a bit more about about our anti-hero hero. Chichikov in his previous job as a government employee was fired for corruption. If there's one thing present in all Google stories, it is his disdain for the corrupt yet pompous government officials. Since Chichikov worked for the government, he knew how to get rich, which exposed the level of corruption among the government officials. Despite this mishap, Chichikov is not deterred. Just like Don Quixote, he dusts off his clothes, gets up on his horse and starts his next adventure as if nothing has happened. Russia is a big country, so he moves to another part of the country to try again. This time he makes friends with a lazy landowner to gain access to other rich landowners. Again, Google uses Chichikov's door-to-door -door salesman's journeys as a device to depict many absurd and crazy characters and incidents. Finally, Chichikov's dream of owning an estate is realized when he purchases one by forging a document. Unfortunately, he's caught in mid-action. The FBI shows up, I mean KGB, I mean the Russian police arrest him. But once again, the man is lucky. Just like a cat, he has nine lives. Some kind soul helps him avoid jail once again. He flees the area once again, perhaps in search of another part of Russia to scam his way for quick wealth. The novel ends in mid-sentence when the man who arrests Chichikov gives a speech talking about how corrupt Russia has become. Quote, as a Russian, as one bonded to you by kinship, by the common blood coursing through our veins, I now appeal to you. I appeal to those among you who have any understanding of the concept of nobility of thought. I invite you to recall the duty which stands before man at every stage of his life. I invite you to take a close look at your own duty and the obligations placed upon you by your service on this earth. Because that is something of which we are already dimly aware, but which we can scarcely... Google in his usual comic style stops here. We don't know whether Chichikov managed to scam more people around Russia, but we know for sure that he's a free man in Russia's large country. Today the world has many Chichikov scam artists make millions and live lavish lifestyles. It is likely that Google, while living in Italy, met some of them either from Russia or from other parts of the world on the run from their home countries enjoying pizza and opera in Rome. Analysis Comedy. When you read Russian fiction, you might think they are so pessimistic and despairing about life. It is true that Russian literature is appealing precisely because of how pessimistic it is about life and human nature. What makes Nikolai Gogol's fiction so unique is his comedy. A while back I talked about Lawrence Stern's novel Tristram Shandy. Gogol's writing is similar in its humor about the absurdities and ironies of life. And Dead Soul, Chichikov, despite failing over and over, keeps on the path he's going. Chichikov is very similar to Don Quixote in that they are persistent despite their failures. 
Of course, Don Quixote is altruistic in his pursuit, while Chichikov is very much selfish. There are so many funny moments in the novel. For example, when a landowner demands a higher price for his dead serfs, Chichikov asks, why would I buy dead serfs at a much higher price? The landowner says, I don't know why, you're the one buying. The novel is full of funny scenes and lines. For example, everyone to his taste, one loves the priest and another the priest's wife. Another scene, a landlady stumbles. I really don't know, the old lady brought out hesitantly. You see, I've never sold the dead before. Russian people. Chichikov's encounters with many landowners are also extremely funny. He thinks he's smart because he comes from the city. And second, he has worked in the government, thinking the country landowners are just a bunch of simpletons, easily convinced to sell their dead serfs. But much to his astonishment, they turn out to be extremely robust in their negotiation techniques and entrepreneurial spirit of making more money. They are as greedy as he is. At times, this sophisticated businessman finds himself lost. Could. A Russian peasant scratching the back of his head means many different things. One could say that Gogol is poking fun of Russians. I think being an outsider, he was able to see the corruption, peculiar ways and the comedy of errors in the ordinary lives of the Russian people. Two character traits are common. A general skepticism among the Russians who don't believe a thing that comes from outside. At one point, they are having a meal and the landowner dismisses the German food. Quote, you can coat a frog with sugar and I still won't stick it in my mouth. Nor will I touch oysters. I know what oysters remind me of. Take some mutton, he continued, turning to Chichikov. Here we have the saddle of mutton with buckwheat. This isn't one of those fricassees which they see up in fashionable household, using mutton that has been lying around in the market for at least four days. All those concoctions were dreamed up by a pack of French and German doctors. And if you ask me, they should handle a lot of them, concocting that diet of theirs to cure people by starving them. Just because they have that wishy-washy German constitution, they imagine they can get the better of a Russian stomach. No, it's all wrong. It's all a lot of stuff and nonsense. It's all. Another character trait discussed is Russia itself. The land has a mysterious force over its people, just like gravity on us all on Earth. It's a force, not always welcome, but very difficult to untangle yourself from it. Could Russia, Russia, what is the incomprehensible, mysterious force that draws me to you? Why does your mournful song, carried along your whole length and breadth from sea to sea, each and re-echo incessantly in my ears? What is there in that song? What is it that calls and sobs and clutches at my heart? What are those sounds that caress me so poignantly? that goes straight to my soul and twine about my heart. Russia, what do you want from me? What is that mysterious hidden bond between us? Russians are the product of their natural environment that has a spell over them. Corruption is at the heart of the novel. Landowners complain about bribes they have to pay to get things done in the government. One man laments that the priests don't do anything about the corruption. This shows that this is an old world where the state is not seen as an authority for justice, but the church is. Gogol was criticized by many Russian nationalists at the time for poking fun at its government and civil service. However, those opposed to the system praised them for exposing the ills of Russia. 
making money. Today, entrepreneurs have to study people, but in those days, they had to experience it. Making sales today is a skill taught in business schools, but Chichikov had to learn its hard way. Making money is at the heart of dead souls. Google, in his usual style, takes things to an extreme and the capitalism of buying dead people in order to make money to tell a story that was true back then and it's even truer today. In fact, I would say today, in a way, we have accepted this business practice of deceiving people through advertising. Today, everyone who is financially successful has taken a leave from Chichikov's book. A good equivalent today would be harvesting and selling data online. Of course, big companies harvest our data, which we voluntarily hand over, and they make good bucks selling it to the advertisers. Those still alive are somewhat protected by data privacy, but those who have died can be bought and sold freely, I suppose. I'm sure there's a Chichikov out there today scamming advertising agencies by selling them dead people's data that is no longer useful. If you're right, this makes a great funny short story about someone doing that very thing, selling useless data about dead souls to some big advertising agency. If you do end up writing it and it becomes a success, please send 10% of royalty my way. Google is also famous for writing about the irrational and the grotesque side of human condition. So now I'll discuss a few of his most famous short stories here to highlight those themes. In his short story, A Madman's Diary, published in 1835, a man who works in the service of the Russian government tries to seduce a woman, but fails miserably. A few pages later, he jumps to the year 2000, April 43rd, and ta-da, he's become the king of Spain. Later, the protagonist cries, asking his mother for help to rescue him from what appears to be torture by the authorities. This short story, which I discussed in a separate video, inspired one of the greatest Chinese writers, Le Shun, to write a Chinese version of A Madman's Diary, which today is considered one of the greatest pieces of Chinese literature. It is a twist of fate Google himself went mad towards the end of his life. One of the biggest mysteries of great literature is how much great writers predict their own demise and their fiction, as if fiction opens a subconscious door to another realm where our life choices happen that lead us to a certain path. The irrational subconscious or unconscious determines a lot of what we call free choice in life. Our deeper motivations, which we are often not aware of, are hidden somewhere inside us. They only manifest themselves through the creation of art, painting or a piece of fiction. Google's most famous play, The Government Inspector, published in 1836, is perhaps one of the funniest stories in Russian literature. A small town gets news that an undercover government inspector is visiting their town to investigate the local authority. At the same time, a stranger is staying at an inn in town. The mayor, thinking it might be him, invites him to his house, treats him like a king at the expense of everyone in town. The guest has no idea what's going on as he's given lots of money as a bribe and the townspeople are outraged by the cost of maintaining this crazy guest. But this comedy of error has a wonderful ending when all is revealed that they have bribed the wrong guy, leaving the audience's imagination to continue the play after the story is finished. Google shows the level of corruption among the government officials, a theme present in all his novels. Google exposes the dishonesty of those in power, but he also takes a preemptive spipe at those defending the Russian state and its local authorities. He quotes a famous Russian saying, Nichivon is Zakrala Pinet Kula Roja Kriva, 
or don't blame a mirror for your ugly face. In other words, don't blame a messenger, Nikolai Gogol, but blame those in charge of Russia. His 1842 short story, The Overcoat, called one of the finest short stories by Vladimir Novikov, is about a man who is too poor to buy a new coat. And when he manages to scrape some money to buy one, it gets stolen in the dead of the night. The coat was so dear to him that he treated it like a pet or even a wife, or like a child clinging to it like a security blanket. They became inseparable. When it's stolen, he is devastated. Not only that, in the freezing cold of St. Petersburg, which is also a metaphor for the ruthlessness of the most westernized, capitalist-minded city in Russia, which also shows up in works by Tolstoy later, especially in Anna Karenina, the poor man dies of freezing cold soon after, and later becomes a ghost that haunts the city, stealing people's coats. This is considered the most influential short story in Russian literature in terms of its realistic portrayal of life to a crazy level of dramatic exaggeration. Today we are all attached to our smartphones. When we lose it, we cannot function anymore. Google's grotesque is most visible in his short story The Nose, published in 1836, which is another classic short story by Google in which a man finds a nose inside his bread and tries to throw it away in the river but instead gets arrested by the police. The owner of the nose, an army major, wakes up one morning to realize he has lost his nose. He goes to report his missing nose to the police but notices that his nose is walking on the street pretending to be someone else. He chases but loses sight of it. His attempt to report fails. He tries to place a newspaper ad, but the newspaper clerk thinks he's reporting a missing man called Mr. Nose. Finally, he's told placing an ad for something so ludicrous can harm the newspaper's reputation, as everyone might think this is a practical joke. The clerk, to console the man, offers him some snuff, a kind of tobacco to sniff on. But obviously the man has no nose to sniff with. When he finally gets reunited with his nose, he cannot attach it to his face. It's a typical nightmarish tale we call Kafkaesque today. When you read Nikolai Gogol's stories, you see Kafka's writing much more clearly, and it's very obvious that Kafka was immensely influenced by Gogol. Gogol's name derives from a bird, perhaps a duck or mallard, so his beak-like nose was one of his most unique and identifying physical features. In human evolution, our physical features and our nose especially show our genetic memory, so it provides a great identifying feature of a family, clan, or lineage. So one without a nose cannot be recognized by society, but a nose without a body is easily recognized according to Google's short story. Google shows how much we put weight on name, ranks, lineage, and people's physical features. Why? Because we are primarily visual creatures. A man's entire being can be reduced to his nose. A man's entire life can be judged based on one act, if good he's a hero, if bad a villain. Nose as a breathing tool has become a social status like a peacock's tail. Google's nose inspired one of the greatest Japanese writer Ryunosuke Akutagawa to write a short story titled The Nose. Unlike in Google's story, in Akutagawa's 1916 short story, the protagonist, Priest, does everything to minimize his long nose because he doesn't want people's attention. Japanese are known for not seeking attention or not wanting to stand out in society. He tries Chinese medicine on it to shrink it by boiling in hot water, then stomping on it, but instead things go south and people notice and ridicule his nose even more, until again he wakes up one morning and everything is fine. 
Also important to note that Nose was an important subject in Tristram Shandy by Lauren Stern, which must have inspired Google. This short story shows the importance of a tiny part of our body on our life. A missing nose of an important person is as debilitating as if he has lost his penis. As a man with a tiny nose, don't get the wrong idea, I'm talking about nose. As a man with a tiny nose, I do wish I had a bigger nose so I could breathe much better. Gogol's legacy. It's no exaggeration to suggest that without Nikolai Gogol's writing, Russian literature would have been very different today. His dark comedy or absurdist style can be seen in Dostoevsky's fiction, most visibly in Nodes from Underground. That edgy style that reveals the darker side of human existence started with Gogol. The depth of his observation of the ordinary lives of the Russian people can be seen in Turgenev's fiction, especially in contrasting the old versus the young most importantly in the countryside. I think his outsider's perspective, being a Ukrainian moving to Russia, allowed him to see Russia and the Russian people with a certain clarity and honesty, which influenced Tolstoy's fiction for being more self-critical. His sharp, witty sentences or simple encounters also influenced Chekhov's short stories. Gogol's beak-like, sharp Ukrainian nose allowed him to sniff and observe the smelliest and fishiest parts of Russia and the Russian Empire. This honest and self-critical tradition became an integral part of Russian literature and continued with Turgenev, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy and more. And we love Russian literature because of its raw honesty which Google pioneered. All thanks to the man's comic nose. Google's influence outside Russia is even greater. Franz Kafka's Kafkaesque should be called Gogolesque because his protagonist in the nose wakes up one morning to find himself without a nose. Just like in Kafka's Metamorphosis, Gregor Samsa wakes up as an insect. Interestingly, Google had a big influence on Chinese and Japanese literature. As I already mentioned, Le Shun, considered the father of modern Chinese literature, and Akutagawa, one of the most famous Japanese writers, wrote their own version of Google's short stories, The Nose and Madman's Diary. For me, Google is one of the greatest comic genius of the world literature, a son of Ukraine who wrote in Russian. The comedy still exists in Ukraine as the current president was a comedian who played a president on TV and then became a president himself. This sounds very much like one of Google's stories. He wrote about the absurdities of life, but one of his most enduring legacies is his sharp observation of those in power. From petty officials to the very top, they all act and behave in the same way. They pretend and lie. The only way to expose their pretentiousness is through comedy. Thank you for watching. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.